Mr. Graham. So we were away last week, just uh, off your little island called KI or Kangaroo Island. I discovered it's called Kangaroo Island because it's full of kangaroos who love to jump out in front of you when you're driving along at 100k. Uh, seriously, it's quite a daunting experience uh, with the kangaroos, uh, the iguanas, uh, the black tiger snakes. When I saw one of those, I, I doubled the speed limit. <laughs> Really, it was just like panic. Just go as quickly as you could. But we went along to a church on Sunday, met some lovely folks who just happened to be from a church over the road and a church down the road. Seriously, it's just incredible. Some young guys on a scripture union mission. Lovely church, uh, KI Anglican Church. Brad uh, Henley, the minister there, spoke a real powerful word on the very subject that we are doing. So it's great for me to hear you from the other side. It's just quite amazing. He was speaking on the place of the Spirit in churches. How about that, eh? Uh, but look, it reminded me that on our travels, I'm sure you do too, on holidays, it's lovely to visit churches and to meet new uh, Christian family and just to see how church feels and looks elsewhere. It's a really good practice to expose ourselves to the diversity. There's no one-size-fits-all. The church is something that's fluid. It has central tenets, but how it looks and feels has much diversity, and Jesus is for diversity. If you ever question whether or not Jesus is for diversity, just dive in the barrier reef, uh, and he'll show you he loves diversity, color, and difference. And so, but one of the things I've found on my journey sometimes is I'll be sitting there, and something just doesn't sit right. And particularly two, two experiences come to mind. I'm, I'm sitting in a church, and there just seems to be a lot of conversation about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit this, and the Holy Spirit that, and the Holy Spirit's gift. And at first I just thought, okay, it's fine. But I began to be concerned the longer the service went on. And I began to question if what we were doing in that service is Jesus honoring or is our phrase Bible-centered? The, the, the situation, it seems to me, is that the Bible has to govern our practice. Otherwise, we'll soon become Mormons. Seriously. Unless the Bible governs what we do, we'll soon lose our identity, cease to be a church. And I want to ask with you this morning, where is the place of giving preeminence to the Spirit in the public worship services of the church. What is the mission brief of the Spirit? Does the Spirit sit on a mission sent by Jesus? What's his brief? Is his brief to draw as much attention to himself as he can possibly accumulate? Or is his brief something else? Let me ask you this. Is the Spirit to be center stage in an evangelical church? There's another question. Is the spirit grieved or delighted when the focus is on himself rather than Jesus? That's what we're looking at in this second part of our series on the marks of the spirit. Hopefully you got a little hand there when you came in. That was a recap of last week. Would you, I gave you that so my sermon will be five minutes shorter. How about that? So just read that in your own time, okay? But let me, let me just begin. We're going to explore together the subject under the heading. So we normally work through books of the Bible. At the moment, we're doing what we call a, a topical series. 
So we're taking a topic. It will nevertheless be expository. We'll expound a part of the Bible. Last week we had being spirit-filled. It was just an introduction, not last week, the week before. Being spirit-filled is quintessential to conversion. The first thing we said, without the spirit, you're not Christian. Secondly, we said last week, being spirit-filled is a further post-conversion experience. It's something that should be ongoing. The handout will explain that to you. So having established that being spirit-filled is not something for some churches with particular names, but being spirit-filled is the regular normative reality of every church of Jesus. It's the normative when we come to faith, it's by the Spirit, and it's normative as we live our Christian life, being filled daily, regularly, moment by moment with the Spirit. So we're now asking, what does a church that's a genuine church, that has the Spirit at work within its members and within its services, what does that look like? And the first one is this. We've got eight to come. We're going to do them over the next few weeks. The first one we're doing today is this. The mark of the Spirit is number one, and, and these are in order of importance, perhaps. Number one, being supernaturally empowered to be in love with and taken up with Jesus. The key mark of being spirit-filled, individually as a church, is that our greatest passion, love, enthusiasm, becomes Jesus. I don't know if you ever thought about the quintessential authentic mark of the church. If you like, look, if we have a pillar, if there was one pillar in Christianity, it would be the person of Jesus Christ. If there was a single pillar in Christianity, because he heads up the whole thing, the whole thing is about him. Let me show you some text. For example, look, I want to show you it's much easier if I put these on, you see. I want to show you that Jesus is the center of the Old Testament. John 5, 39, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees says, you search the scriptures because you think that through them you have eternal life. These are the scriptures that, he's talking about the old when he wasn't even obviously visible, and yet Jesus could say that those Old Testament words, every chapter, every book, did what? Testified about Jesus in shadows, in types, and so forth. He's the center of the New Testament, Matthew 7. Listen to how Jesus takes all focus onto himself. Therefore, whoever hears these words of God the Father, he doesn't say that. It's why he's such a revolutionary. Whoever hears these words of mine, He's like a wise man who built his house on a rock. Jesus becomes the center of the New Testament. He's the center of faith. Uh, how is it that we receive forgiveness, peace with God, everlasting life? Whoever believes in Jesus has eternal life. He's the center of life and existence. Listen to these words that Jesus speaks. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus doesn't point the way to God. He says, I am the way to God. He's the very center of life and existence. He's the very center of creation. Who created the heavens and the earth? Trivia. Who created the heavens and the earth? Jesus. 
He is before all things. We'll have the next text, please. All things were made by him and for him. All things were created. I'll requote that. By him and for him. He is the center of creation. He is the center of the future. Who will we encounter at the end of the world? Jesus, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the very center of the universe. And all this is by way of God the Father's pleasure. Listen to God the Father as Jesus speaks on his behalf. The Father judges no one but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. In fact, Jesus says, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him unless Jesus is absolutely central, the pillar of our faith and church. We cease to honor God the Father and we cease to be a church. This is the gravity of, of, of what we're suggesting here, friends, that Jesus is the very center of the universe. And so here comes a question. With all that as a canvas, okay, the centrality of Jesus to everything, with all that as a canvas, when we now come to the giving of the Holy Spirit liberally into our world in Acts 2, the pouring out of that one-time event, Pentecost, when we come to the giving out of the Spirit and the Spirit comes, what mission brief would you imagine he comes with? Given that Jesus is the center of the universe, he now sends his Spirit in his stead into our world. What would you imagine that the Spirit's mission brief is? Yeah. In fact, there's a very, the very verse in John, which we can look at, tells it. When the spirit of truth comes, what will he do? To him. The very mission brief, the very purpose of the spirit of Jesus Christ in our world is to lead men and women to Jesus to a knowledge of him, to a love of him, to a glorify, uh, glorification of him, to make him the center, pivotal point of their lives. The quintessential and primary role of the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus sends, is to shine a light on Jesus. Therefore then, the mark of a Spirit-filled church is not being taken up with the Spirit but been taken up with Jesus. Do you see the point? The mark of a spirit-filled life is not being taken up with the spirit, but with the Jesus that the spirit glorifies. That's where the focus of the Christian is meant to be. And I want to just look at that text with you in an expository manner. Now, I want to just work through those verses and just bring to you what Jesus is saying in these words about the role of his spirit and the place of the spirit in a church that is genuinely filled with his spirit. Let me take you to chapter 14 to give you uh, uh, some introduction to uh, chapter 16. So in chapter 14, Jesus first, in this uh, last uh, evening of his life, in, in this opportunity with Jesus uh, and his disciples, he speaks these words to them. John 14, he says, I'll ask the Father, and he'll give you another counselor 
to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. Jesus is about to leave his disciples. He's just said to them those words of John 14, uh, uh, you know, let not your hearts be troubled. Do you believe in God? Believe also in me and my father's house and many mansions. He's told them he's about to leave. And then he reassures them that things won't get worse on his departure because he will send someone else who will counsel them, comfort them. And he is the spirit of truth. And so in his absence, this is what a commentator writes, in his absence, the spirit of truth will direct their decisions, counsel them continually, and remain with them forever. So the spirit will do Jesus' work in his absence. Moreover, in verse 26 of chapter 14, we're told here's another extension of the Spirit's work when Jesus departs. The counsel of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. Somebody give me a Bible. We've got Bibles in this church, haven't we? Have you ever wondered why those Gospels, or any part of it, let me just do with the Gospels. This is the Gospel of Mark is written 15, 20 years after Jesus' death, okay? Have you ever wondered how Mark could write the words of Jesus with such clinical precision? Someone tell me how. 15 years after the event, how? Can you remember what he was wearing 15 years ago? Do you care what he was wearing 15 years ago? Definitely. <laughs> she probably can too. How could I remember with such precision what Jesus taught? Because the Holy Spirit that the first disciples were given at Pentecost will do what for them? He will remind them. And he's talking about the first disciples here. He will remind them of everything that Jesus taught. He'll bring it to their memory. He'll enable them to put it together, encapsulate it into text, in languages that we can understand. So the Spirit enabled the first disciples to write down the details of Jesus' life and ministry. There's more, and this is really summing up uh, what's been gone. So we go to chapter 16 now, and here in chapter 16, Jesus picks up the same subject, it's the same discourse, and here's what he says, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth about Jesus. He will not speak on his own, he will speak only what he hears. Can you see something about the autonomy of the Holy Spirit? What is Jesus saying about the autonomy or the freedom that the Holy Spirit has during his mission on earth? What's he saying? That he's exclusively governed by Jesus. That the Spirit of Jesus Christ is not an autonomous part of the Trinity whereby he does his own thing. In fact, he comes along and he decides he'll run his own show now. After all, he's here by himself. No, he's on the strict Trinitarian. Remember, this is within the Trinitarian relationship of God. He's within the Trinitarian, what we call, there's ontological oneness in the Trinity. What do we mean by that? There's ontological oneness. This oneness, look, oh, what substance is Lorraine made of? Is it the same substance as, as Greg? Well, looks very similar. It's the same it's flesh. It's on, they're ontologically same, but they are functionally different. He's a guy and she's a gal. And they have very different functions in life. Okay? Yeah, he drives and she tells him how to drive. That's kind of how it works. <laughs> right. So, so within the Trinity, there's ontological oneness 
They're both identical in substance, but there's functional diversity. What do we even mean by that? Within the Trinity now, there's functional diversity. Yes, and those roles differ. The Son, for example, always obeys the Father, but the Father never obeys the Son because of the functional relationship. And the Spirit obeys both the Father and the Son. And that's Jesus' point here, that when the Spirit comes, he will do nothing of his own initiative. He won't, he won't make any decisions on his own, but everything he does will be according to the strictest guidelines and mission brief that Jesus and the Father send him. And that mission brief, we've already said, is to glorify Jesus. Without any flexibility in that, he will speak not on his own, but he'll speak only what he is, and he'll tell you what is to come. So the Spirit is not autonomous. He comes under the strictest oversight of the Trinitarian relationship, enabling the disciples to write with, in, with, with, with understanding and depth, the details of Jesus' life. Here's what D.A. Carson, a theologian of our time, this is what he writes. The spirit of truth leads the disciples into all the implications of the truth, the revelation intrinsically bound up with Jesus Christ. The reason there's such depth in John's gospel about Jesus, such depth and wisdom, is because the spirit enabled John to write the most fascinating truths. Remember when they were with him in John chapter 2? He says he could destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days. And not even the disciples knew what he was talking about. But when he writes about it in chapter 2 of John, he understands. And the reason he understands Jesus' words from 50, well, probably a few decades earlier, is because the Spirit has enlightened him to do so. So here's, here's that point. So we know that because Jesus is sent, so the Spirit is sent by Jesus and his disciples, he comes and he enables them. So but sent by Jesus and his Father, he enables the disciples to fulfill their purpose. A spirit-filled church sees and believes in the revelation of the word of Christ. Let me just take another Bible here. The reason, we'll just do with the New Testament just for now. The reason we take these words to be infallible and the revelation of Jesus Christ is because within them we're told that the Spirit's function is to bring all this reality about Jesus to the church. It's why we trust it. It's why we got confidence in it. Because the Spirit of Jesus Christ brought that to us. So the expense. Here's the expense. I think I've already kind of touched on it. The Spirit is doing this. What's the expense to himself? The Spirit is here on a mission brief to glorify Jesus. What's the expense entailed for himself? What's it costing him? Yeah. It's costing him complete. And, uh, well, it's, it's resulting in complete and other obscurity. He's completely in the background of everything that's going on. He comes exclusively to bring Jesus the glory and must, 
uh, whatever personal cost that is, and we're only talking in human terms of a Trinitarian relationship, he must stay in the background. All the revelation bound up in Jesus' person and mission are pressed home to the disciples, Carson says, so that they can communicate it to us. And in doing so, the spirit remains in the background. Here was the NIV commentary on the same text. His chief purpose, the spirit, is not to make himself prominent, but to magnify the person of Jesus. The spirit interprets and applies the character and teaching of Jesus to his disciples, and by so doing, makes him, Jesus, central to their thinking and real in their lives, and simultaneously makes himself of no interest or focus to the Christian. There's a, do you remember what John says? John almost pictures what goes on with the Spirit and Jesus. Remember when Jesus came on the scene, what did John say of himself? He must, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. Almost in a similar sense within the Trinity that the Spirit's coming only increases Jesus' presence and decreases the focus on the Spirit. He will bring me Glory. Well, he will bring glory to me. How do we know we're a spirit-filled church? All we talk about is the spirit. No, that was a test. How do we know we're a spirit-filled church? All we talk about is Let me give you uh, look, an example. It doesn't work really well. It's the best I could come up with. Look, imagine you're living in the United Kingdom, the motherland. Okay? Right. Right. Uh, uh, you're chauffeur to the queen. Okay? Okay, you turn up to Buckingham Palace. Jeff, you'd be suited at this role. You turn up to Buckingham Palace. You, you pick up Her Majesty. You drive her to the Ritz. There's a function there. And you open a door for her and you let her out and you introduce her to the community all waiting for her there at the Ritz. Right. And then they start shouting, here comes Jeff Bean, hooray, three cheers for Jeff. Hip, hip, hooray, hip, hip, hooray, hip, hip, hooray. What a fantastic driver you are, Jeff. Boy, and I like that shirt. And that's a good vehicle, mate. What a guy. Hey, we should get a drink later. What would the queen be thinking? <laughs> yes, thank you. Can you see the point? The spirit is the vehicle for bringing Jesus to us. To start reveling in the spirit of Jesus is to miss whom he is delivering to us, Jesus Christ. He must be the one who takes all our hoorays, always and forever. When the spirit of truth comes, says Jesus, he will bring glory to me because his chief purpose is to magnify in me. So here's the point. A spiritual church is Jesus-focused. But let me take the study a bit further because I don't want to be unfair 
I don't want you to ever be able to excuse me of selecting texts that suit my case. I want to take the two of the books of the Bible that shed most light on the Spirit, and I want to challenge the way we read them. The first one is Acts, and the second one is 1 Corinthians. In both of those, in Acts particular, it's a book that seems almost entirely taken up with the Spirit, and we could almost be justified after reading the book of Acts and saying, yeah, but the Spirit is everywhere in Acts. Surely there must be some focus on the Spirit. I said, no, we're not reading it correctly. We're not reading it correctly. Let me show you. We're going to look at Acts, and we're going to look at 1 Corinthians. Let me start with Acts. I want to suggest, friends, that when you read, when we read the book of Acts, we have to appreciate that what we're reading is a cross-section of the church. If you come from an engineering background, if you've ever done engineering, or you've seen an engineering diagram, I want you to imagine you have a picture of a car, engine, all you can see is the glossy, shining engine, but then if you cut it away, what do you see? All the workings. Okay, now those workings become visible, but ultimately that vehicle is only interested in getting from A to B, and just because you've cut away the engine, you can see the detail, that doesn't make the detail of what's inside that engine the focus of that vehicle. And the point with Axe is, yes, we see the spirit all over it at work in the lives of individuals and the establishment of the church. The spirit is the vehicle by which the church is being established through the disciples. But the thing that he establishes, just like the thing that the engine of a vehicle does is to move a person from point A to point B, though the spirit is all over Acts, the thing that he's doing is what? Expounding Jesus, glorifying Jesus, building churches, building disciples into Jesus-centered people. And just because we have a cross-section of his work, it doesn't mean he's to take the focus of what's going on. I'll give you an example. Let me, let me show you what I mean. So take Acts 2, for example. The Spirit has been poured out. Peter gets up and he preaches his first sermon, the greatest sermon that Peter's ever preached. 3,000 people get converted through it. So he's under the power of the Spirit. The Spirit has just been poured out. He's received the Spirit. Who does he preach about? Jesus! Do you see the point? So the Spirit is the vehicle, but the focus and the goal and the direction is Jesus. Now you have the 3,000 who have just been converted by Peter's great sermon. They believe, they receive the Holy Spirit, they're baptized. What's the first thing they do? Singing, start singing hallelujah, Holy Spirit songs? What's the first thing they do? They do, they do. Let me show you in detail. The next verse, please. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And what, was the, what were the apostles teaching through the power of the Holy Spirit? Jesus! The very mark of being spirit-filled is that I'm in love with Jesus. I can't get enough of Jesus. I want Jesus' word. I want Bible teaching. I want Bible preaching. I want Bible reading. So that I can get more and more of the revelation of Jesus. And so though in Acts we see the spirit at work and could get easily misguided by saying, look, it's all about him, we have to remember that the work that the spirit is doing in Acts is the work of glorifying Jesus. Let me show you another example. Let me take you to the churches. So if you can imagine that the book of Acts is a timeline, all through Acts are the births of churches. So those epistles that, that Paul writes to, a number of those are birthed 
in the chronology of Acts from 1 to 28. Right, okay. So when you begin to look at the spirit working and then you see the church is made, I want to show you that the church that he births, what they look like within Acts. So let me give you Acts 16. We see there the birth of the church at Philippi. Uh, in the Macedonian leading city there. So the church of Philippi is birthed in Acts 16. That is in Acts 16, 6. Paul turns up there. Now let me just show you where the Spirit is working. The Spirit is guiding him to Philippi. The Spirit, we're told, directs him, closes doors, opens doors. So the Spirit's at work. He gets him to Philippi. Paul, Luke, uh, Silas, and Timothy, the four of them, they get there and they see a conversion. Acts 6, 6, we're told how the Holy Spirit guides them. And, then, and, and when they get there, they see the, uh, the, the conversion of Lydia and the conversion of who? Who else gets converted in Philippi? A rugged guy, who is he? The jailer, the Philippian jailer, who gets converted when Paul and Silas break out of prison. And so, so that's the church that's started by the Spirit in a period of the Spirit's work. Now you would expect, wouldn't you, that when you look at that church's existence of what it does and what it's about, it's all about the Spirit. But it's not. Look at the letter that Paul writes to them. Next one, please. Look how he starts it. I, one rather, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus. Peace and grace to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you read the book of Philippians, all you see is Jesus, 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 Jesus. There's hardly ever a mention of the Spirit. And yet in Acts, he's the one who birthed it. Do you see the point? Although it's the Spirit of work in Acts, he never takes any focus. He never becomes center. He's never talked about. Hardly. It's always and ever Jesus. Let me take you to Corinthians. I'm sure my time must be running out. Oh, we've got another 45 minutes, I think. <laughs> 10 minutes. Okay. Let me take you to Corinth. But what about the book of Corinth? They were into the Spirit in that church. Yeah, they were. They were heavily into the Spirit in that church. In fact, it's the only book of the Bible where anybody's into the Spirit, apart from Acts. So before we begin to say, oh, the New Testament's all about the Holy Spirit, it's the only book apart from Acts that you hear much about him. And you hear about a church that's fascinated with him. But do you know what Paul warns that church? Have a guess. The book of the New Testament where they are where they're overwhelmed with the spirits and the supernatural gifts. You know what Paul warns them of? Damnation and hellfire. The quintessential spirit-filled church of the New Testament, Corinth, is the one church Paul warns of hellfire. Let me show you. So we've got the church at Corinth. Look what he says to them. 1 Corinthians 13, I just read a couple of the verses for time's sake. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, tongue speaking, gifts of the Holy Spirit, but have not love, I am a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. God don't care if you can speak in tongues, unless you've got the love of Jesus in your heart, it stinks. He carries on. If I, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have the faith that can move mountains, but have not the love of Jesus, I am nothing. And the point being there, and Keller argues, and I think he's got a point, the point there is they are nothing spiritually. That they are outside of faith. That they are damn 
This is a spirit-filled church he's speaking to, and he's warning them that their use of the gifts has no credibility in where they stand in God. Did you hear that? That their use of the gifts of the Spirit give them no leg up as to where they stand in God. He's warning them that even with the gifts of tongues and the gifts of prophecy and the gifts of healing and, and the like, they can be outside of Jesus and be damned. And when Paul says that, this wasn't anything new that Paul was saying to a church using the gifts. Jesus had already preached it. Somebody tell me where. Jesus has already preached to churches who are fascinated with the gifts and with the Spirit and warned them of damnation. Anyone remember where he says that? It's in his famous Sermon on the Mount. Because he was preempting churches like Corinth and he warned them before they were birthed. What did he say? Anyone can guess? In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, just before the bit about building the wise man building his house on a rock, what does he say just before then? Just come up on the screen for you now. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me from charismatic Pentecostal churches, I'm not labeling Pentecostal churches, I just mean churches with those experience. Many will say to me, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name? Didn't we not do many miracles in your name? What are they saying? What are these charismatic churches saying to Jesus? I speak in tongues. I cast out demons if I got cast out 10. I did miracles. I healed a cripple. In your name, Jesus. So let me into heaven. What does Jesus say to the charismatic focused church? And look, we are charismatic if you believe in the gifts. I certainly believe in the gifts, but the gifts within a biblical framework. But what is Jesus saying to the charismatic focused or spirit focused church? What's he saying? Hey, yeah, he's saying you can do all those things and be damned. Listen to what he says next. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me. And what does he call them? Evil doers. He calls the charismatic focused church evil doers. Can you see? What it tells you, friends, is, look, remember when Moses cast his uh, snake, his, uh, his uh, staff down, and it became a snake? Well, when the pharaohs and musicians uh, cast theirs down, it became two snakes. Moses cast his down. What does that tell you about the supernatural and unbelievers? Even if they can do it. It means that unconverted people can do supernatural things. Unconverted people can speak in tongues, can cast out demons. I've seen it been done. You don't believe me? I'll take it to Bangladesh where I was born, and I'll show you unconverted people casting out demons. Unconverted people can cast out demons, can do the miraculous. They can become church members. The very fact that we are so taken up with the Holy Spirit may not be revealing spirituality, maybe just be revealing that we are damned, needing to come to repentance and faith in Jesus, not the Spirit. I wonder how many Christians 
have come to repentance and faith in the Holy Spirit and not repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And so the danger is, for I think what Corinth shows, is that we can have all these things and be outside of faith. And I'm going to come to a close now. So the Holy Spirit Christian, when he comes to a church that is, uh, that does believe in him, does believe that the gifts are for today, but wants to use them under strict biblical guidance. That's what we're going to deal with in this series. What do we do with the gifts? And they're not just for me to, and for you to do whatever we want with them. They're to be used under the strictest New Testament guidelines, which includes, I'll throw you one for free. This is a free one free of charge. If you speak in tongues, you are not warranted by the Bible to stand up here and freely speak in tongues publicly. That is a prohibition of the New Testament, a strict prohibition. It's why our band will never break out in tongues. It's why when we pray for people here, nobody will start speaking in tongues. Not that we don't believe in tongues, but because Paul strictly makes it clear that it's not for public church services, except for the one, I'm going to deal with this in a couple of weeks, that leads to the interpretation of tongues. We'll do, we'll do the gifts another day. That was a freebie, okay? Uh, you can just think about it. So I need to finish. So I want to leave you with this. I want to ask, where are we? Where are you? Where am I? Are we a spirit-filled church? There's a simple litmus test. You know when you go to the, if you have a diabetes test or whatever, you know, it gets his litmus paper out, dunks it, and he knows. There's a really simple litmus test for knowing if we're spirit-filled. You just get somebody in the congregation, you split them in half, and you see what's written there. Is it the Holy Spirit? Or is it Jesus? Anything other than Jesus, if we can use this strong terminology, is idolatry. Do you know the Pharisees, you, you, you do know, we do know that there can be idolatry within even faith. Do you know the Pharisees were guilty of idolatry with the scriptures? Remember, remember what Jesus said to them in John 5? You diligently search the scriptures because you think that by them you have eternal life. They loved the scriptures. They quoted the scriptures. They memorized the scriptures. They were in love with the scriptures, but not in love with Jesus. You can be in love with the Holy Spirit, be fascinated with the Holy Spirit, taken up with the Holy Spirit, and not love Jesus. And so the mark of a spirit-filled church is the litmus test is, do we love Jesus? Is Jesus does Jesus' name roll off our tongues? What's the thing that we most desire? Is it the Spirit and his gifts, or is it Jesus and his word? What excites us? Do we get excited when the preacher starts speaking in tongues? Do we all of a sudden feel, oh, this is a good church? Walk out. Next time that happens. Seriously. And if the minister speaks to you, say, well, you were contravening the Bible, which takes away your license to operate as a church. So what gets us excited? What, whose life are we interested in? Are we really interested in Jesus? Is Montaz, your pastor, spirit-filled, or is he spirit-focused? Are we as a church spirit-filled, the consequence of which we're Jesus-focused, or are we Jesus-focused? May God give us the grace to be genuinely a spirit-filled.
faith-filled church and passionately in love with Jesus Christ. Whom to know is life eternal.